Hello everyone, I'm Duncan Rayburn and welcome to Unorthodoxy and to part 6 in our series on reworlding. I recorded this a while back, so while my voice is out here in cyberspace, my body is in England and I can only say I hope I'm having a good time. And I also hope that you are all doing well in this mad messy world in your inworlded life. The subject of this episode is tools and we're going to be looking at some ideas around how the very tools we use, technologies for example, shape our worlding, deworlding and reworlding. There is much more to say on this than I can possibly say here, but hopefully these provocations I provide will get you to think about how some of this can apply to your own situation and life. The primary assumption in this series has been very simple. It's the idea that in the life of faith and understanding, change is inevitable. Our beliefs and hierarchies of values will go through shifts in response to what's happening around us in the world. What is important to us yesterday will not necessarily be important to us today. And while this is a fairly ordinary and somewhat predictable thing, often this experience can be incredibly disorientating. Because maybe we knew what to do yesterday when everything was the way it was, whereas today we are left with a range of questions, not necessarily knowing what steps to take, not knowing what the future will bring or whether our faith and understanding are adequate for the job of making life as good as it can be. Part of my argument so far has been that the Bible itself, as this massive library of books at the center of the Christian faith and tradition, indicates towards the inevitability and necessity of our being responsive to the world. The history of Christianity also suggests the inevitability of transitions in faith and understanding. This is something particularly evident when we take a view of the Bible and of Christian history through the lens of spiral dynamics, which is something that we're going to get to in the episodes that follow this one. It is in our responsiveness that we're able to reworld what has been deworlded, although this is by no means an uncomplicated thing. As we know from painful experience, when we have been deworlded, it is easy to respond in less than appropriate ways, or in ways that make things worse. And the same is certainly true for the life of faith. Often, we respond in ways that at the time seem to be very sensible and rational, but in hindsight will appear ridiculous and even childish. The truth to be understood is a matter of proportion, and being the disproportionate beings that we naturally are, we are bound to get our proportions wrong. The reality is that the life of the mind, which is so intricately involved in the life of faith, is always a matter of whatever it is that goes on in the mind, its embodiedness, its worldedness, its emotional life, thought life, spiritual life, and so on. And this, as it turns out, has a lot to do with what the mind engages with, namely specific tools that we use to find our way through the world, like language and clothing and electronic media. We are, after all, tool-using creatures. I've spoken a little bit about the Tower of Babel already, but here I just want to go back to that story very briefly. At the heart of the story is this idea that a specific kind of technology, in this case bricks, can inform our own sense of our own capacities. In particular, brick making gives people, the people in the story, the impression that they can build a tower to reach God. In a way, even if that sounds a little bit ridiculous, this is how we often think of technology. We think that certain technologies 
have a kind of saving quality to them. And this is something that Marshall McLuhan uh, brings out in his work. McLuhan is, is definitely informing much of what I'm saying here. In the wake of modernity, Western people began to think that by splitting and dividing reality up into words and the distinct meanings of words, into messages and nuanced interpretations, that we are actually able to control the degree to which we are influenced by the world. The idea in modernity was that if we focus on things that we are consciously aware of, then all the stuff that we are unconscious of will not affect us very much. Which is quite a nonsensical thing to have thought, but it is still how a lot of people think. Even in the Genesis story we've covered, there's a suggestion that the content is secondary to the container. God first forms creation, then fills it. The form is first, the content comes later. This can be put as follows. The message is of less significance than the medium itself. Of course, technically speaking, the message is another medium, but it is still of less significance than the medium that it is part of. So what is on a screen is less significant than the fact that it is on a screen. The screen itself is actually having the biggest impact. McLuhan suggests that a medium is any extension of ourselves or anything that introduces a new scale or pattern or proportion into our associations and interpretations. In other words, while media may not necessarily completely change our values, media are likely to change the proportions of our values to each other, and therefore our responsiveness to the world is also altered. Let's look at a concrete example of a few media. Clothing, for one thing, extends the skin and, as fashion has shown us, changes the way that we see and understand people, as well as, more functionally, what sort of weather we are willing to put up with. In this way, the clothes make the man, so to speak. A bicycle is another medium, and it extends our feet, and so it changes the pace at which we live, as do motorbikes and cars and trains. The telephone, yet another medium, extends our ears and mouths, and a cell phone builds on this by extending our eyes into the digital realm, which is symbolic of our actual central nervous system. And now, anything connected to the internet, to this massive neural network called the World Wide Web, extends our minds out into the world. Media are extensions of self, and this changes our sense of proportion and our way of patterning the world that we encounter. They are not just things, but entire environments, which are dynamic processes with which we must navigate the world. Notice that we do not have a choice to be affected by the media that we use. We will be affected, that's just how this works. But as I've noted, media are amputations of self too. If you extend one thing, you're likely to lose another. Extend your ears and mouth out into the world with a cell phone and your ability to drive well is significantly diminished. And while the internet gives us the global village, it also provides us with a sense that reality is comprised of fragments. Research bears this out. Cell phones will connect you to almost anyone across the world while simultaneously preventing us from connecting with the personal people right where we are. In other words, once again, media are reconfiguring our entire perceptual framework. 
We get to have no say at all over whether this happens. Our only choice really is which tools to pick up, so to speak. Media bring about changes in the ways that we relate to the world and to each other by operating at a pre-conceptual level that often escapes our conscious awareness and our various ways of articulating that awareness through language. And since media intervene in the world as it appears to us, it is obvious that they are anything but inconsequential. This is something we find reflected in a story from Plato's Phaedrus, which tells us about a conversation between the Egyptian god Thamus and an inventor named Thuth. When a very pleased Thuth shows a skeptical Thamus his brand new invention of writing, he reports that this invention will make the Egyptians wiser than ever before and will also give them better memories. Thamus is not so convinced, though. He tells Thuth that this invention of writing will not improve memory at all. Writing to him is merely a receipt for me memory. It is, by analogy, a map to the territory of memory. And with regard to wisdom, Thamus continues, the inventor Thuth is even more mistaken, for writing will produce not real wisdom, but a shadow of wisdom, a kind of virtual reality rather than the real thing itself. Before we side with either Thamus or Thuth, though, we need to recognize that, as Neil Postman does, they are really one-eyed prophets, incapable of the kind of stereoscopic vision that we need to properly understand media and their effect on us. Thuth only sees the good of the medium, while Thamus sees only the bad. But media give and they take away. Maybe one way you could think of this is that media are a bit like Trojan horses. They are gifts that steal. This is what media do to us, but we should keep in mind that we are not merely passive in the face of the world. We really do get to respond. Still, one of the more insidious aspects, especially of the postmodern realm, which in postmodernity can be thought of as a technology in itself, it's the assumption that we are merely passive and therefore merely reactive subjects. The truth is closer to the more ancient metaphysical vision offered by St. Thomas Aquinas. We are actively receptive. Although it is true that we can give up our agency and therefore be given to responding in overly reactive ways. Nevertheless, since most people tend to focus on the more illuminating and giving aspects of media, my aim here is to dwell a little bit longer on the darker effects, the implicit and often unnoticed thievery of media, especially with regard to how it affects faith. In particular, I want to look at the various consequences that arise when the map, the mediated construction, supplants the authority of the territory, the primary and holistic experience of things in reality. How does this affect our debates, our psychologies, and our relationships with life and belief? What do we need to restore the broken relationship between mediation and holistic personal experience? I'm not sure I will be able to answer all of these questions here, but they are questions that are raised by looking at the question of technology. One way to address the, let's say, the problems of media is to become aware of how mediations have affected our perceptions. We get some sense of this from the famous five monkeys experiment. Some scientists put five monkeys into a large cage. There was also an appealing-looking bunch of bananas hanging from the top of the cage and a ladder that would allow the monkeys to get to the bananas. It didn't take long before one of the monkeys spotted the bananas and consequently he began to climb the ladder. 
As he did this, however, the scientist sprayed all of the monkeys with a torrent of ice water, leaving them rather unhappy. Later, another monkey would try to go for the bananas, but the scientists kept on spraying those monkeys with the cold water until they all learned that the consequence of their banana mongering was always going to be unpleasant. But then something interesting happened. One of the monkeys got replaced by a new monkey who obviously didn't know the drill. He went for the bananas almost immediately. The other monkeys, in a desperate attempt to prevent the blast of water that they knew was coming, immediately grabbed the new guy and beat him up. Since the spray of the water didn't follow, they assumed that their actions had worked. Then, another of the original monkeys was replaced. He also went for the bananas, only to receive the same treatment as the previous newcomer. What's most disturbing about this is that the previous new guy would join in. The same process of replacing one of the original monkeys with a rookie happened until all of the monkeys in the cage had utterly no understanding of what caused the other monkeys to be so terrified of the consequences of reaching out for the bananas. They just did what they did because it seemed that that had always simply been the way things were done. Note here that the problem is, symbolically speaking, a loss of tradition. The monkeys cannot locate themselves in the world properly because they had no access to tradition. I mention this because my argument is not against repeatedly doing something just because it was done before, but is against doing something without knowing why. In which case, the aim is not merely to do something else, but to figure out what happened before. The notion of tradition is vital to knowing how we relate to worlding, deworlding, and reworlding. But this is something I'm only going to be able to get to in the very last episode of this series. Still, anyway, the same sort of process happens, although arguably less violently, when we, for example, learn how to read and write. Initially, it's very difficult work. The letters are terrifyingly alien, and connecting those strange shapes with precise sound seems at first to be a kind of insanity. But eventually the process becomes so easy that we don't even have to think about it at all. Mediations become invisible. This is true of all media. With regard to reading and writing, an interesting shift happened in culture in the late Middle Ages, that contributed to the rise of modernity, especially when the printing press was invented. People could now read in isolation, apart from others, and figure out the meanings of things on their own. The words on the page say one thing, but the medium says something else. You are alone, you are objective, you are rational. Dialogue is not necessary for generating meaning, and so on. So it's really impossible to understand the rise of Protestantism, which which included something called sol sola scriptura, apart from this idea um, of the printing press, which had actually become part of culture. A massive shift also happened in the 1840s with the advent of the telegram. Think of it as Victorian Twitter, which started to split time and space up too. The underlying assumption of the medium, building on the nature of print itself, was that meaning could be atemporal and disembodied. Another idea also started to become more plausible, namely that truth itself could be merely propositional, in other words, deworlded. 
This is a terribly new idea and it does not do us any favors, but the fact that it started to creep into the human consciousness was very much owed to the medium. When you start to think of media and the nature of media, you start to realize that perhaps fake news is less about getting facts wrong than it is about the fact that media construct the world in such a way that it is possible to completely de-world the things that we say. You can think of any technology and theorists have had a lot of fun figuring out with some success how each technology has set up significant shifts in society and culture. The invention of electricity changed our relationship with sleep and therefore changed our embodied experience of time. The invention of the telephone, like the telegraph, changed our relationship with time and space. The invention of the gramophone, basically Spotify before Spotify, changed our relationship with music and dancing and community. I could go on, but I will mention just one more example before drawing up a few thoughts about what all this means for our engagement with and search for meaning. The example is this. I got my first cell phone when I was 20, which my current students find very difficult to fathom. And it seemed incredibly strange to have the possibility of sonic intrusions become permanent. Initially, it was just a phone with the added functionality of being able to send text messages, typed very slowly and without the help of autocorrect, uh, since the keypad was very basic. As time wore on, cell phones got all sorts of functionality added, such that now you have a device by which you can, well, almost rule the world. It's a phone but a very unphone-like phone at that. The fact that you can use your phone to call a friend is almost its last function. And now, as we all know, cell phones have become normal to me and you. Those of you who have grown up with a cell phone in one hand and a dummy in another would think the absence of a cell phone odd, not the presence of one. Not having a cell phone seems far weirder now than having one is. The strange becomes normal and the normal becomes unfamiliar. The familiar becomes invisible. This is habituation. And habituation is never neutral, no matter how much we may want to think it is. Things in the world become ways through which we start to perceive the world, such that the world itself becomes invisible. This is a necessary part of how we make meaning, but part of my reason for highlighting all of this stuff about media is that I want to point something very simple out. How we interact with the world affects our worlding and deworlding and reworlding. In a literate culture, for instance, worlding, deworlding and reworlding have almost everything to do with finding a point of view within what you might call a public. A public is a massive collective of people with different perspectives and different takes on life. Literate cultures assumed that society consisted in all of these perspectives because of the visual bias of print. But now we are all immersed in an electronic culture and the medium itself suggests, well, the medium of the internet or of, of social media, for instance, suggests the obliteration of point of view. It says we are all one. Yes, there are specific messages where people are trying to assert identity, but this has got everything to do with the fact that identity has been swallowed up by an electronic circuit, basically. The public is dead and what it has given birth to is a mob. This is perhaps surprising, but as the West has moved towards retribalization, it has increasingly taken on the shape of a village in which everyone is bickering with everyone else and gossip is unusually prevalent. 
We all go about wanting to have our own opinions, but the medium itself tends to say no opinions allowed, which is at least partly why there has been a cry out by some people against free speech. Those people are merely mimicking the message of a particular medium. In this world of electronic media, de-worlding is experienced predominantly in being overwhelmed by the mob, even while we are seeking genuine belonging. And re-worlding is generally only possible when we do find genuine belonging, as well as when we find others who can hear our points of view in a world intent on homogenizing everything. One of the best ways to re-world in this mad world is to sit down with a good book and to have your own sense of perspective restored. Social media is not on the whole going to serve us well in this. I would argue that one of the more significant aspects of so-called modern technologies is that they are all insistent on de-worlding. I notice how people are often shocked at the existence of trolling online or at how easy it is to get into an argument on Facebook or Twitter. Well, don't be surprised. Everything you put out there on social media is de-worlded since the main thing that has been amputated is you. You are there, of course, but in a very small, very incomplete way. And even I have to admit that as you listen to me, I am just a voice and not a body and a human being. But maybe there is good news in all of this, because we naturally desire equilibrium. If we are paying attention, we will start to notice where and how imbalances have started to have much sway over us. But this is still a perilous and difficult thing to have to figure out in a hyper-mediated world, because even after we have disengaged from social media, and even after we've thrown away our cell phones, our minds will still operate as if we are still in the digisphere. So, this is what I want to say to all of this. First, we are all like those monkeys in that cage, living in the world as if it is normal to act and react in certain ways, when the truth is closer to this. We have been trained, often by a tradition that we cannot see and by factors in the present that we cannot notice. I'll mention one example in terms of how we've landed up in a world in which it's fairly normal to pick your own worldview and belief system. We think this is normal, but the reality is that this hyper-individualist approach to belief stems from a very particular genealogy, beginning with some late medieval thinkers and then taking the logic of Martin Luther's Reformation as a given. Secularism owes its existence to various strains of theological thinking and is always in some ways parasitic upon theology such that even choosing against religion today is made possible only by religion. Again, you can listen to my Murdered God series on this. Then my second thought on all of this is this. Given that we are prone to merely reacting to belief systems today, I would argue that a much better way is to figure out the story of not just how you got to where you are in the life of faith, but how we all got to where we are in the life of humanity, especially in the West. What this has done for me is that it's gotten me to realize my indebtedness to history and tradition. Things are the way they are because history and tradition have given us a particular world. And in connecting with the larger story, the smaller story, especially the story of technological and relational fragments, becomes much easier to handle. The third thing I would say is this. Be mindful of how the world is shaping you. I'll have much more to say on this in the next few episodes as we look at spiral dynamics, but for now, just keep this idea in mind. 
Every way you interact with the world and with others is changing you. You are not alone. You are always inworlded. The assumption that we change our beliefs merely because we have arrived at new deworlded epiphanies about how things are is preposterous. We can only change our beliefs when the world around us encodes that possibility in its very materiality. Once you become aware of this fully, fully present to it, there is a fourth thing to be aware of. The world is shaping us, but we are not merely victims of its influence. We still have some agency and we do get to respond to it. What does it mean to seek after truth knowing that our finding truth is bound up in what we pay attention to? Also, it's worth asking yourself this question. If I'm being changed by the world, then what kind of world do I want to be changed by? Do I want to mimic the digisphere and its digifrenia, or do I want to mimic that which brings about wholeness and genuine connectedness? We are not merely victims of the world we inhabit. We do get to have a say. We do get to choose how to respond, even as we are being affected by inworlded being. Very practically speaking, this means that we can engage in technologies in a more holistic way, changing them up, so to speak, becoming aware of what each one does to contribute to our sense of wholeness. And that is what I have to say about tools. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I do appreciate it. And I hope that this has given you some decent food for thought. Do join me for the next episode in which we begin to look at spiral dynamics. Cheers. Cheers.